Okay, everybody, hope uh, your week is going uh, relatively well. Uh, of course, our tefillahs are still with uh, everybody going through this difficult mulchama, and uh, as, as uh, you undoubtedly heard, there's kind of a new stage in it, ground invasion, which creates, actually, I'm not sure if we'll get, I'll talk about it today or next week, because I, you know, I'm gonna, we're talking about the laws of mulchama, and we're going to hit upon it, but you understand the excruciating dilemma that uh, the Israeli army faces right now. On one hand, uh, they want to eradicate Hamas, quite uh, justifiably so. On the other hand, they want to rescue the hostages, quite justifiably so. And the problem is, again, with HaKadosh Baruch we can do anything, but these objectives are kind of contradictory uh, because uh, Hamas uses... They use our people for sure, and even they even use their people as human shields. So as a result, uh, the hostages are probably kept in a place that Israel Badafka wants to bomb the tunnels and, and, and everything else. And uh, by securing that military objective, God forbid that could harm the hostages. So the big, big paralysis that we have in terms of just knowing what to do uh, is how do we you know, attack the enemy and, and try to save all of the people. So the truth is, uh, it's a very, very difficult objective to accomplish. Uh, you really, this, I mean, you, you, we need, we need siyata deshmai in everything, but here it's very, very obvious uh, and open and, and clear that without HaKadosh Baruch Hu, there's just no way of achieving all of these things. We, uh, we do one thing, and that's going to create a bigger problem with the other thing. So... We should continue to daven, continue to be mispalel, continue to give tzedakah, uh, masim tovim. I'm not sure if the school has any program for extra mitzvahs that uh, uh, you are supposed to be doing. I'm not sure what it is, but whatever. But uh, whether there's a program or not, every one of us has to think about what extra contribution we can make to have a suchus min to open up the, the gates of, of, of mercy. Uh, now, uh, we talked about last week, again, we're going to continue for a while with the laws of Nuhama. As somebody once said, uh, right now we're looking at the laws of Nuhama as halacha lemaisa, meaning practical halacha. Our prayer would be, so the way it works is this way. We study the laws of Nuhama because it's practical, and we study the laws of sacrifices and Beis HaMikdash because it's theoretical and we hope it'll be. Our tefillah will be, it'll be exactly the opposite. So we will study the laws of Nuhama as theoretical Torah, which is still Torah. So even when Mashiach comes, we'll learn the laws of Nuhama because it's in the Torah. So it's worthwhile to learn. Uh, and the laws of sacrifices and purity and impurity, which now is only theoretical, we should talk or learn it halacha So we hope that there'll still be theoretical Torah and practical Torah, but we hope that what you put on what side of the equation is, is Taka going to be is going to be reversed? So, uh, so it's very very sad. But Lamai said these laws of Milchama uh, are pretty relevant, although some of it is theoretical, like Amalek and the like. So you'll recall that uh, we said to review a little bit that Halacha recognizes two categories of war. We have what is called Milchamis Mitzvah Mitzvah Wars, and we have what is called Milchamis Rishus. 
Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about Milchames Rishos other than to define it, just so you'll know what it is. Milchames Mitzvah, you'll remember, there are three categories of what are called Mitzvah Wars. Mitzvah Wars are obligatory wars, wars where there's a mitzvah to wage war. One is against the nation of Amalek, to wipe them out. The other is a war against the seven Canaanite nations, the Chiti, the Amori. Uh, and the third is a war against an enemy that attacks us and wants to destroy us, which we will call a war of defense. Now, the Rambam writes, of these three categories of Milchames Mitzvah, two of them don't apply today. Because Amalek as a nation, now again, the spiritual poison of Amalek is still in the world, that's true. But Amalek as a nation... Uh, either we don't know who they are or they're not around anymore because Amalek is a grandson of Esau and that particular nation is not identifiable. The seven nations of, Can- of Canaan are indeed extinct. There's no more Hittites, no more Amorites, you know, etc. So of those two categories, the Rambam says they don't, two of them don't apply today, of those three categories rather, but the third category is unfortunately very much alive. That's the war we're fighting right now. That is a war against an enemy that is trying to destroy us. That is called a mitzvah war. Now, you'll notice, just to review, that the Rambam does not count a potential fourth Muhammad's mitzvah, that is a war to conquer the territory of Eretz Israel. In other words, uh, let's assume, I mean, as is, as, is, as is the case today, there are parts of Eretz Yisrael, not even, not just the West Bank and, and, uh, and Gaza, but there are parts of Eretz Yisrael in Syria and in Lebanon that are within the boundaries of the land of Israel. So is there a mitzvah to aggressively conquer them? So you'll notice that the Rambam does not count, he does not count, a war to conquer the territory of Eretz Yisrael as a mitzvah war. Ramban, right, that's Nachmanides, sometimes it's hard to distinguish Rambam and Ramban, so sometimes I'll use the English, right? So Nachmanides, Ramban actually says, he adds a fourth category to mitzvah war, a war to conquer the territory of Eretz Yisrael meaning anything that is within the biblical boundaries of the land of Israel, which is larger than the state of Israel. Of course, it goes both ways, actually. There are parts of the, I mean, the state of Israel and Eretz Israel overlap a lot, but they're not the same, meaning there are parts of the state of Israel that are actually not Eretz Israel. This would be a lot, for example. Right, so Eilat is technically Chutz Laaretz. In uh, Eilat, they keep they two, two days of Yom right? They do? They do, they do, no they way. do. Well, well <laughs> if I want to be a little sarcastic, which maybe I shouldn't be, most of Eilat does not even keep one day of Yom Tif. Okay, uh, that's not. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, whatever, but, okay, but, but, but the answer is Hashem. So it's not clear. It's, it's, it's somewhere, somewhere in the Negev, meaning the southern boundary is somewhere is there in the Negev. Yeah, Beersheba for sure. Yeah, Beersheba for sure is it. Beersheba for sure is it. Uh, so Eilat would be an example of a city that, that most opinions say is not within Eretz Yisrael. So that's an example of state of Israel includes territory that's not Eretz Yisrael. But the opposite is even more so. 
uh, there is a lot of Syria, a lot of Lebanon, uh, and some of Jordan that is included in the boundaries of Eretz Yisrael, even though it's not within the boundaries of the state of, of Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it may be the case. It may be the case. And, and in fact, it's even a question if you, if any of you decide, I mean, now no one's doing it, if you ever t- want to take a trip to Amman, Jordan, or whatever it would be, uh, you know, when you buy fruits and vegetables, you'll, you're, you're going to have to think about truma and miser. Uh, there'll, be, there'll be different issues because it may have the holiness of the land of Israel. So it is important to know that although most of the state of Israel has the holiness of the land of Israel, but there is the land of Israel that's not in the state of Israel, and there is the state of Israel that's not within the land of Israel. Now, okay, that's just something to be aware of in terms of maps. Now, where the exact boundaries are are not so simple. It's a whole halachic specialty to try to figure out what are the exact boundaries of Eretz Israel. So then, because of that, do people only in the boundaries of the state of Israel do one day? Uh, well, well, as you say, there aren't, a, yeah, there aren't that many Jews in those other places. But uh, besides Eilat, the people in the halachic... Well, well, as I say, virtually everybody in the state of Israel keeps, except for Eilat, keeps one day right. because 95% of the state of Israel is within the land of Israel. So you're not going to have a problem. So... God forbid, I'm not telling you if you go to Tel Aviv or Haifa, you know, uh, it may not be Eretz Israel. 100%, it certainly is Eretz Israel for all, all purposes, right? Okay, so you don't have to worry about that. But a lot, a lot is, as far as I know, a lot is really the only city in, in the state of Israel that keeps only one day, uh, keeps uh, two days of, of Yom Tov and the like. Now, here's the thing, though. According to Ramban Nachmanides, there actually is a mitzvah to wage war, to conquer. He says that that's one of the 613. That's correct. That's correct. He learns, this is called Yishuv Eretz Yisrael. In other words, people often misunderstand this. The Ramban does say living in the land of Israel is a mitzvah, but he also says conquering the territory is also a mitzvah. And most people don't. So Rambam, Maimonides, does not count living in the land of Israel as a mitzvah, nor does he count conquest as a mitzvah. And therefore, according to Rambam, according to Maimonides, it is only a Muhammad's mitzvah to defend ourselves from attack. It is not a mitzvah to wage a war of conquest. So this is an important machlokas, Rambam, Maimonides, and Nachmanides, Ramban, and this depends on whether living and dwelling and conquering the land of Israel is a mitzvah in the Torah. Uh, Rambam says not, and uh, who we paskin like is an interesting question, uh, but since so many great, even great rabbis live in the diaspora, so the assumption is, la we follow Maimonides' view, that it is not an absolute obligation. Although it's an interesting question you may raise, um, let's look at Ramban's life for a moment. It's very interesting. Uh, Ramban, Nachmanides, lived in Spain. Now, he did spend the last few years of his life in Eretz Israel, but only because he was kicked out of Spain. Do you know the story? Ramban was a great, great rabbi, the greatest of the rabbis. 
and uh, he was summoned by the king of Aragon, uh, part of Spain, to debate religion with an apostate, with a Jew who converted to Christianity who became a friar. And this apostate Jew was trying to show, like missionaries do today, uh, all of the different verses that indicate Yoshka is Mashiach, etc. And the Ramban had to answer them, answer these attacks. This was a very famous debate. It's called the Disputation in Barcelona. And uh, they actually made a play out of it, I think. Uh, but the Ramban wrote a transcript of it. And it's very, very interesting. Uh, in those days, people would vote, it's like, like modern uh, TV shows, they would vote like who was the better debater, who won the debate, the guy. And it turned out that the Ramban was voted the better debater. And in fact, the king gave him a lot of money and the king said, I never heard a person defend so well a position that's false. Meaning the king, the king was a Christian. He didn't believe in Judaism. But he said, you defended it so well. So here's the thing with the Ramban. There's good news and bad news. The Ramban, in fact, the Ramban didn't want to do this at all because the Ramban basically felt uh, there's no benefit here. Because if he loses, which he didn't think he would, but if he loses, chas v'shalom, the Torah is discredited. And if he wins, the Jews are going to get in trouble because they're discredited Christianity. So the Ramban actually did not want to do this at all, but the king ordered him to do it, and he had to do it. And what happened was that the priests, the whole, the whole Catholic clergy, were getting very, very uncomfortable as this debate was going on because they were so, they were so confident Ramban would not succeed. And as he was succeeding, they wanted to pull the plug. They wanted to like, stop the debate early and uh, afterwards, they wanted the Ramban to be killed because they said he committed the crime of discrediting the church. And the king, so if, uh, exactly what the Ramban said, if he wins the debate, it's going to be bad too. So the king liked the Ramban and was impressed with the Ramban. So the king cut a plea bargain with the priests that if the Ramban leaves the country, he'll be allowed to live. He'll be allowed to live if he leaves Spain. So in his 70s, he left Spain and he, was, uh, he decided to go to Eretz Yisrael. And this was a very, very difficult trip uh, in those days especially. And when he came to Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael was almost desolate. He mentions there was not even a minion of Jews in Yerushalayim. Not even a minion of Jews. And they had to get a Sefer Torah from Chevron and bring people together. There were actually a few hundred Jewish families up in Akko. Up in Akko. But Jerusalem was not. Because the reason was, the land of Israel in those days, this is the 1200s, were, were uh, divided between the Christians of the Crusades and the Muslims. And Jews were constantly on the run because sometimes the Muslims were massacring them, so they ran to the Christians. Sometimes the Christians would massacre them, they ran to the Muslims. There was literally no stability whatsoever. But the Ramban did write his commentary on the Chumash in Israel. And the Ramban even started a Beit Knesset, which to this very day is the oldest continuous, almost continuous, Shul in, Eret, in the world, really. Uh, the Ramban started it in the 1200s, and this is in the old city. There's a shul called Beis Knesset HaRamban. 
Now, for some reason, there's another show called Beis Knesset Ramban on in, here in Katamon, Chizkiyahu HaMelech, but that's not the one. But in the old city, there's the actual show that the Ramban started. Now, the building is not the same, the building is the same, but, but the site is the same. The Ramban started Beis Knesset. And this was in continuous use from the 1200s until 1948, mm-hmm. when Jews were driven out of the old city. And from 1948 to 1967, it was not in use. But other than those um, 19 years, continuous Beit Knesset from the 1200s. This was the Beit Knesset of the Ramban. I think they even have a story, I may have my shows wrong, but I think there's a whole story that there was an Arab custodian of the Beit Knesset of the Ramban. Uh, and... Um, you know, most of the shoals in the old city were desecrated, desecrated by the Arabs. But he did not allow the, the Ramban synagogue to be desecrated. And uh, he guarded it with his life. And 19 years later, he was still alive. He turned it over back to the Jewish community. So my question is simply this. If the Ramban maintained that there's a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael, and it's a Torah commandment, it's one of the 613 commandments, why didn't he go until he was kicked out of Spain? He didn't go to Eretz Israel until he was uh, in his 70s. Now, according to him, it's a mitzvah minat Torah to go to Eretz Israel. So how could he not go? So we don't really know, but I think there are two answers that are commonly given. Answer number one is that in those days, the trip, and not just the trip, but even living here, was literally a matter of life and death. You were putting your life at risk. Much, much more so than today. And therefore, pikuach nefesh, just like pikuach nefesh, you don't uh, keep Shabbos, you don't keep kosher, he was not halachically obligated to put his life in danger, and therefore he didn't go. That's one reason. Another reason is that when you're a very, very great spiritual leader that is needed by your people, so your obligation to your communities in Europe. Now, in those days, there was no email, there was no fax, there were no telephones. So if you weren't, I mean, I mean even today, I mean, the Rebbe was asked, I mean, a little bit of a nervy question, but if the Rebbe was asked, why doesn't he uh, go to Eretz Israel? Right. So there's really two questions they were asked. Question one was, why doesn't he move to Eretz Israel? Question two is, why doesn't he visit Eretz Israel? He never visited Eretz Israel. His father, the Friedecker Rebbe, actually visited Eretz Israel, but uh, uh, the last Rebbe did not. So, Legabe, why didn't he move to Eretz Israel? So the Rebbe's answer was that since most of his Hasidim, most of his Hasidim, were in Chutz Laaretz, he needed to be where most of his Hasidim were. Now, Let's make what's called the Kalvachomer. If the Rebbe said that that was necessary, even in a modern time when you have, you know, email and telephone and everything else and videos, Kalvachomer, how much more so in the time of the Ramban, if he were to separate himself from the communities, they wouldn't be able to reach him. So this was a necessity. He needed to be where the people who 
relied upon him more, right? So that's that. And in fact, even today, even on a smaller scale, okay, the Ramban was Gadol Ador, the Rebbe was the Rebbe. But the truth is, even individual synagogue rabbis sometimes have to make that cheshbon. I know personally, Rabbanim of synagogues, who very much wanted to make Aliyah, and they were instructed by great Gedolim that they have an obligation to stay in Chutz La'aretz, because otherwise their community might fall apart. Now you gotta be careful. Not every rabbi is, not every rabbi is indispensable. Apparently I wasn't indispensable, right? I, I left and, well they say, they, they always say that, <laughs> they say that when a rabbi leaves a show, he's afraid of two things. Uh, one is they're gonna fall apart. And the other is they're gonna do great. <laughs> Maybe, maybe that's it. Uh, so, so you know, so uh, uh, no rabbi should automatically assume, hey, if I leave, you know, it's all going to fall apart. But sometimes that is, that is a situation. Sometimes the situation is where a shul so much depends, or a shul or a community so much depends on a certain individual that that person is irreplaceable. So you shouldn't make your own judgment, but, you know, you talk to people, Higher up, and you know they determine what the situation what the situation is. So I so but just to remind you where we are. So I, I gave you two possible reasons why Ramban did not make Aliyah until he was kicked out, even though he holds it's a mitzvah. Uh, reason number one is it may have been bikuach nefesh. It may have been literally endangering his life. Uh, reason number two is uh, the fact that so many people depended on him for halachic and spiritual guidance that he felt he had a responsibility. You know, in more recent times, the great Chafetz Chaim, who died in 1933, uh, in his old age, the, the late tw- 1920s, he wanted to come, to, he wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael. He wanted to kind of retire, so to speak, and die in Eretz Yisrael. And the Gedolim sent a delegation to him begging him not to go, saying, you can't leave us, you can't abandon us. Uh, actually, literally, they said, you are not allowed to leave. Now, the truth is, he ignored them. He was going to leave. He was going to go anyway. What happened was, the day before he was going to leave, his Rebetzin broke her leg or whatever. So they had to delay the trip, and by the time she was well, you know, he was very old, he, he was not well, he was not able to travel anymore, and the like. Now, with respect to the second question, though, the Rebbe, the Rebbe was then asked the second question, and that is, okay, you feel you can't move to Eretz Israel, okay, because your Hasidim are mainly in Chutzlaris, why don't you at least visit? Uh, some, somebody said, you can even see this on YouTube, in, in, not in Yechidus, but in the dollars thing, sometimes people say to come visit, you'll give chizuk, you'll give uh, you know, strength to people. So the Rebbe said that he felt that once you're in Eretz Israel, you're not allowed to leave. Mm. So therefore, he said, until Mashiach comes, until he's ready to be there permanently, he felt he can't even go on a trip. Now, L'chairi, that's a big chumrah, because, I, I mean, is the, is the Rebbe paskening that no one is allowed to visit Eretz I mean, At least for himself, what he's saying is, I'm not allowed to visit. Uh, I either live here or I don't go. Once I'm here, I'm not allowed to leave. That's a, that's a very big chumrah. And what can I tell you? His own father-in-law, apparently, did not take that position because the Friedrich Rebbe came uh, in the 1920s, uh, came to Eretz Israel. 
and then uh, went uh, went back to Chutzlaretz. So it's hard to know. We, we don't always know. The Rebbe did not always, uh, you know, the Rebbe did not always publicly give reasons for things. I mean, sometimes he would say something, but it may not automatically be the actual reason which he sometimes wanted to keep uh, relatively private for various reasons. Okay. So, be it as it may, therefore, to summarize, according to Rambam, there are three categories of mitzvah wars. According to Ramban, there are four categories of mitzvah wars. According to the Rambam, the three categories are Amalek, seven nations of Canaan, and a defensive war against an enemy that attacks you. That's Rambam. Ramban would agree with those three, but he would also add a war to conquer territory within the boundaries of the land of Israel, as described in the Torah, is also called a mitzvah war, based on his idea that Yishuv Eretz Yisrael is, uh, is, a, is a mitzvah. Okay. Now, here is the thing. There is another type of war, again, I'm just going to define it so you'll know what it is, called Milchemes Rishus, optional wars. Optional, meaning non-mitzvah wars. What's a non-mitzvah war? So this is going to sound very, very strange. How could Judaism even allow this? A non-mitzvah war is an aggressive war of expansion. The Jewish people decide one day that they want the oil fields in Saudi Arabia, so they declare war on Saudi Arabia or the like, uh, or even if they, they could even declare war on uh, whatever it is, on any country they want. Now you may say, wait a second. So it's not a mitzvah, but it's allowed. Now, the first reaction when you hear that is, that's not possible. You're telling me that a Jewish country governed by the Torah is just allowed to declare aggressive war against a peaceful nation? Ah, the answer is yes, but there are so many conditions that this is impossible today. First of all, this only applies if there's a melech of the house of David. So until Moshiach, can't do it. Number two, there must also be a Sanhedrin that approves it, which we don't have. But number three, and this is the, this is the real kicker, essentially, Hashem has to give you direct permission through prophecy, meaning Hashem says it's okay. And this is done through the Urim Betumim. Now remember what the Urim Betumim is. When there's a base of Mikdash and the Kohen Gadol wears the uh, big day kahuna, the priestly garments, so he has a breastplate with 12 jewels, and on the jewels are engraved the names of the tribes, Ruvain, Shimon, etc. And uh, the Urim Betumim, so, so that's called the Choshen. Now the Urim Betumim is not the Choshen per se. The way to look at it is the Urim Betumim, I'm sorry, the, the Choshen is the hardware, and the Urim Betumim is the software, meaning the Urim Betumim is a piece of parchment upon which are written special names of Hashem. And when the Urim Betumim is placed in the fold of the Choshen, it gives the Choshen a prophetic power to communicate messages from Hashem. Right, so don't confuse this. Urim Betumim is not the name of the breastplate or the jewels. It is the name of the cloth that has the Shemos. Now, what does Urim Betumim mean? So Urim comes from the word or, light, and Tumim 
comes from the word perfection, meaning it gave you a perfected light in terms of divine messages. So you would ask the Urim Vatumim a certain question and it would spell out the answer by the letters lighting up and spelling out. That's why you have to ask a very short, you couldn't really ask the Urim Vatumim essay questions. Uh, Wait, but you said it would light up? The it would light up, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now some say, some say it only, it was only visible to the Kohen Gadol, meaning you, you would not see it light up, but the Kohen Gadol could, could see it, others say it lit up. So if you said, Cain Allah, should we go to war? So if the answer was yes, so the Cain, a Chaf and a Nun would light up, Cain. If the answer was no, it's Lamed, I mean, no, because all of the tribes have all the letters of the Aleph base in them and the like. Which means, now, here's the thing. So that means a Melchemist Rishus is only permitted if Hashem himself authorized it through the Urim Vitumim. Now, which means there's no such thing as, you know, an optional war. You can go to war if Hashem gives you permission. Now, we can assume that 99 out of 100 times Hashem is not going to give you permission. So in reality, therefore, a Muhammad Rishus was rare even when there was a base on Mikdash. And Bisman Hazah, it's impossible because we don't have the Mikdash yet, we don't have a Melech, we don't have a Sanhedrin, we don't have Urim Batumim. So in all halachic discussions, the only thing we're talking about is Muhammad's Mitzvah. And of the three types of Muhammad's Mitzvah, we're only talking about the third type, which is defensive war, right? So you keep on narrowing it down. Melchemist Rishus is not relevant today. Amalek is not relevant today. The Seven Nations is not relevant today. So everything is under the category of defensive war. So the only halachic war, or the only war that halacha would say is a permissible war, a legitimate war, is the mitzvah to defend the Jewish people against an enemy that is trying to uh, hurt uh, the, the the Jewish people. Yeah. Um, do you need all three of them, but or can a leader have heard from Hashem and then they can? No, you, have, you absolutely need all. These all are three, three conditions: Melech, Sanhedrin, Urim, Betumim. Okay. Okay. By the way, um, I don't know if anyone here uh, went to Yale University, prestigious school. Uh, but if you ever look at the motto of Yale University in New Haven, you actually see it's two Hebrew words that are Urim Vitumim. Urim Vitumim is the motto of Yale University. It's a little pretentious that we are the, you know, the perfect light that, uh, of knowledge in the world. Now, why would Yale University have a Hebrew motto? Because you have to know, you know, Yale and Harvard, they go all the way back. They, they existed in colonial before there was the United States. And in colonial times, an educated person uh, was expected to know three classical languages in addition to English in America. And that was Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. So Thomas Jefferson uh, knew Hebrew, for example. You know, uh, uh, intellectual people knew Hebrew. And in fact, in Harvard University, until maybe 30 or 40 years ago, um, the valedictorian had to give a, his speech in Hebrew. There was like a, he, is there, yeah, it was like an actual Hebrew speech, Hebrew speech that, that that was given. So they got rid of it. Now you know. Now he, not only did they get rid of Hebrew, they got rid of Latin and Greek too. 
so I mean, you can take a course in it, but it's not—it's no longer a required uh, required thing uh, in any in any way. In fact, I heard this may be a bubble mice. I don't know if it's true. I heard that when uh, the United States broke away from England, there was such a hatred of Britain that there was some talk about not having English. We don't want English to be the language of the United States. Right, so there was some thought that maybe Hebrew should become the language of the United States. Uh, And the story goes, it was defeated by one vote. Now, I'll tell you an opposite. I'll tell you, yeah, one vote. In other words, had there been one more vote, Hebrew would have been the language of the United States. Now, I'll tell you another thing. When Israel was established, you know, uh, there were a lot of people who either didn't know Hebrew or Hebrew didn't have a lot of words for yeah. modern things. Yeah. That's why Eliezer Benyuda had to invent words. So there was some thought that maybe Hebrew should not be the official language of Israel. Uh, German was it considered French or English. It is. English. So imagine this alternative history. You know, you grew up your whole life, you know, knowing Hebrew. <laughs> And you come to Israel. To of course, of course our svarim are in Hebrew, so, so we're learning. You'd have, a, you'd have a very good time of it. But in terms of the street, you just can't pick up this English. It's so, so, so hard. How, how do you order a falafel in English? <laughs> it would be a whole, a whole opposite type, oh of, type of problem. But Baruch Hashem, but again, our, our, obviously our, our, our Tanakh, our Kitzvah HaKodesh are all in Hebrew. So, so if you would have had Hebrew in America... Uh, you'd be in a good, uh, much easier position uh, in terms of learning and the like. So these are, uh, these are interesting ironies of history, that English almost became the language in Israel and Hebrew almost became the language in, uh, in America. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. It's a different thing. <laughs> and then you'd have all these anti-Semites, you know, speaking Hebrew, you know. Whatever. That would be a problem for them. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. That's curious. I was going to ask, actually, like, if you know, you're saying that Harvard and, like, all of them have the Hebrew, I know it's right, like, you're right, but also, wasn't there a time period where I used to be Yes, 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 yes. This was in the 1920s. This is mainly the... Well, well, you're correct, but keep in mind, their infatuation with Hebrew was not because they loved Jews. I mean, they, they were anti-Semitic, but Hebrew was a classical language, and they knew that the Bible, the Bible was written in Hebrew, so... Uh, wow. Therefore, there was something about uh, you know connecting to the Bible uh, and the like. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and Greek. Now the the Christian Bible's original language was was Greek. So so Greek and Hebrew were the biblical uh, Bible languages uh, for for them and and the like. Okay, so now uh, here's the thing I want I want to go over. Um, if you remember in Parshas Shoftim, it's in the book of Devar, in Parshas Shoftim, not, not Sefer Shoftim, Parshas Shoftim in the Chumash. So it mentions that when the Jewish people go out to war, there's a special Kohen whose job it is to give them what you might call a Musr talk, you know, giving, giving them strength and courage and saying, Hashem is with you, Hashem will protect you, do not be afraid, go ahead and fight the enemy. And this is a designated Kohen. This is his job. He's called the war Kohen. His, his, his name is Moshuach Milchama. Moshuach. He is anointed. He's not the Kohen Gadol. This is a separate position. 
Mashuach Milchama, his job is to inspire the troops in times of war. So his first job is Chizuk, to give them strength. But then he has a second role. He announces that certain people go home and they don't have to stay in the army, or maybe they're not even allowed to stay in the army. You'll recall, in other words, he also calls out certain people and exempts them from military service. So you'll recall there are actually um, four categories of people who are sent home. Oh, yeah. This is in Parsha Shoftim. So it says the first person is the person who betrothed a wife, betrothed a woman, and did not yet con- consummate the marriage. He is sent home and he's exempt from the fighting. Now, in order to understand this a little bit, I have to give you a little background about marriage because the way marriage was conducted in the Torah and even in the time of Chazal is very, very different than we do it today. And what's even more confusing is that modern Hebrew uses the terms of Chazal in a way that's different than Chazal used them. Today, you, you, I'm sure you've heard the word erusin. Yeah. Now, erusin in modern Hebrew just means engagement. When you get engaged, it's called erusin. That's not what it means in the Torah, and it's not what it means in Chazal. What they used to do is, Jewish marriage used to have two different ceremonies that were separated by 12 months. The ceremony number one was the ring ceremony, where the chassan would give the kala. It doesn't have to be a ring, but give her some money's worth. And this is the erusin or kedushin? Kedushin and erusin are the same. Oh, okay. That's the the difference in modern Hebrew. Yeah. And that's when the chassan says to the kala, hare at mikudeshetli, right, like today. Behold, you are sanctified to me with this ring. That's erusin. Now, in the time of the Torah, in the time of Chazal, she would then go back and live with her parents or live by herself for a whole year. The marriage was not consummated for a whole year. A year later, they would do part two of the marriage. They would recite the Sheva Brachos, and then the marriage would be consummated. So, part one is called Erusin or Kiddushin. Those are the same. Part two, which is Sheva Brachos and Yichud, Yichud is being together and consummation, was called Nisuin. So this is a very strange situation. Erusin may sound like engagement to you because it looks like he gave her a ring, but no, Erusin is full-fledged marriage. Uh, if you want to terminate Erusin, you have to have a get. Uh, if a woman commits adultery during Erusin, it's adultery. But the husband's rights are not complete. He doesn't inherit his wife if she dies. Uh, he's not obligated to support her yet because it's still her parents' obligation. So, Erusin and Nisua. Now, today, therefore, and again, we're getting ahead of myself, we'll talk about this in much more detail. A Jewish marriage combines Erusin and Nisuin the same time. Or not the same time, but the same night. So the ring ceremony is Erusin or Kiddushin. The Sheva Brachos and the Yichud, which is a symbolic consummation, that's when the 
bride and the groom go into a private room, that is the Nisuin. By the way, I hope you see this is a different picture than we have it. When you go to a chasna and you hear the Sheva Brachos under the chuppah, you get the impression that that's the end of the ceremony. Actually, it's not. It's the beginning of part two. In other words, part one is giving of the ring. Part two is Sheva Brachos and Yichud. And if you would be at a chasna, right, if you had a time machine, and you'd go to a chasna like 2,000 years ago, you'd be a little confused. You would see the chasna give the kala a ring, and then everybody would go home. And you'd say, what's going on? The answer is, oh, Erson, come back in a year. <laughs> and then, you know, we'll do the rest. And by the way, the main, the main party was always connected to Nisu, and Erson almost didn't have any, any big party even. So if you were coming for dancing, there wasn't a lot of dancing by Arison. Okay? So you have to understand, therefore, that two ceremonies that used to be a year apart, we now do one after the other. When did that start? You know, if you learn the Gemara even, the Gemara always assumes this year apart. Right? So when did it happen? So interestingly enough, it's actually credited to Rashi that Rashi enacted in France, and this was picked up by other rabbis, that we should combine Erusin and Nisuin because it was morally too difficult for the bride and the groom to be married to each other and not be able to consummate the marriage. So therefore, it was put together. So that, that only dates from, well, it's been a long time now, but that dates from the, uh, the 1100s, the 12th. 12th century. Now, this is what, so, so, with this little background in mind, you can now understand what the Torah is talking about. The Torah says, if you, again, speaking to men, I'll talk about women in the army in a moment. If you as a man made erosin on a woman, but you did not make nisuin, you are exempt from military battle because it would be a great, great pain to be killed before you were able to finalize your marriage with your wife. So that's category one. A ras isha, a ras, a rusin. Now again, I want to point out, a rusin does not mean, mean engagement. If the chayal is simply engaged to a woman, that does not give him an exemption. The exemption is he already made Kiddushin but did not have a chance to consummate the marriage. Okay, this is why it's very critical that you don't translate a ras with the modern Hebrew meaning of erusin. It refers to the halachic meaning of erusin. Okay, second category. A person who planted a vineyard and did not yet be able to eat of his fruit. Now what is that referring to? So that is referring to the law of Orla. And vineyard is lavdafka. This would be any fruit tree. What is the halacha in Eretz Yisrael at least? If you have a fruit tree that you plant, you are not allowed to eat the fruit for three years from the time that you planted it. Now, 
it's a little complicated how you calculate the three years. It does not mean three full years. Uh, rather, uh, if you planted it uh, more than 45 days before Tishrei, which is 15th of Av, that counts for year one. So it's really just two years and 45 days. In other words, it depends when you planted the tree. If you planted the tree after the 15th of Av, then that first year doesn't count, and you actually have to have three full years. But if you planted it before the 15th of Av, then the 45 days count as year one, and it's two years. It's also very complicated. Um, it runs from planting. So what happens like this? Uh, let's assume you buy a tree, a sapling, from a nursery, and it gets replanted. Now, it could be that the tree is already five years old. But every time you replant it, that may start the three-year Orla clock again. So you have to be very careful about this. When you buy trees that are going to be relocated, and they're fruit-bearing trees, you have to know whether the Orla clock starts again. Generally speaking, uh, if you bought them with enough dirt that they could be kept alive based on the dirt that was there, then relocating them would not require it. But if, if it was without dirt, uh, then there would be a problem. Um, also, let me point out that Orla does apply even outside of the land of Israel. So you need to be aware of this. You'd have the same problem. Uh, the only difference is that in Chutz La'aretz, if you don't know for sure if it's within three years or not, you could be Mako, in Eretz Israel you have to be strict. But if you know that it's Orla, it's even forbidden in Chutz La'aretz. So essentially, going back to the exemption, if a person had a vineyard or a fruit tree and he was not yet able to enjoy the fruit, that's an exemption. Third exemption is a person who either built a house or bought a house, but did not yet have a chance to live in the house. Again, these are ideas that we don't want a person to go to war if he hasn't gotten the satisfaction of the matanos, of the gifts that Hashem has given him, whether it's marriage, whether it's a vineyard, whether it's a home. Now, there's a fourth exemption, which is really strange. He who is afraid, he who is scared, Yorei Verach Levav. Anybody that's scared goes home. Now, that seems a little strange because if you're telling me anybody that's scared gets to go home, I would assume that any normal person is normally going to get scared. But it means it's a certain level. It's hard to imagine, but it's a certain level where literally he's not able to function. And there's a reason for this. The Torah gives a reason. Why do we send home nervous wrecks? This is very interesting. Because a nervous wreck has a contagious effect on the morale of other people. If I'm terrified, if I'm screaming... I'm breaking down crying because I'm so scared. It's not just me. I'm going to make other people scared. I'm going to make other people demoralized. 
And therefore the Torah says, you go home. So these are four exemptions. He betrothed a woman and didn't consummate. He planted a vineyard and wasn't able to eat the fruit. Orla, in other words. He built or bought a house, was not able to live in it. And a person has a debilitating, paralyzing fear. Now, of course, that's, that sounds subjective, so obviously somebody's going to have to determine how serious that is. Because obviously it doesn't mean you have no fear. It doesn't mean you have any fear. Everybody has fear. But it means is your fear so severe that it would affect people. Now, here is what the Mishnah says in Masechah Sota. These exemptions only apply in optional wars, which we don't have today. But when it is an obligatory war, all of these four categories are still obligated to participate. Now, let me go further. Even in an optional war, the exemptions are just exemptions from combat, but they could be assigned to backline duties like cooking or medics or whatever. So, so again, the, the Gemara makes two important points about the exemptions. Number one, the exemptions only apply to optional wars. They don't apply to mitzvah wars. That's number one. Number two, even in optional wars where the exemptions apply, it does not exempt them from non-combatant national service. So they may have to work in an office. They may have to prepare food. In other words, they're exempt from putting themselves in dangerous situations, but they are still obligated to contribute for the war effort. Okay, everyone understand this? So again, so when it comes to a mitzvah war, they can even be ordered to fight. And when it comes to an optional war, they're exempt from combat, but they still have to, they still could be ordered to contribute to national service. Now, these are the four exemptions in Parsha Shoftim. But now I'm going to tell you there's another exemption that you might call a super exemption. It's an exemption that's even greater than these four. And that is Shana Rishona after a marriage was consummated. In other words, let's assume the man not only did erosin, like today, he got married. He not only did he do erosin, but he even did nisuin. In other words, he consummated the marriage. But he's within the first year of his marriage. So this is amazing. A lot of people misunderstand this. A chasan in shona rishona of marriage after it was consummated, is not only exempt from optional war, but is even exempt from a mitzvah war, 
And not only is he exempt from combat, he's even exempt from national service if it would take him away from his wife. See, people don't realize this because in Parsha Shoftim, it actually doesn't mention that case. In Parsha Shoftim, it mentions the man that betrothed and didn't consummate. But this is different. This is the man that consummated, but he's within the year. That's not in Parsha Shoftim. That's in a different part of the Torah. That's in the next Parsha, Parsha's Kiseitse. And that is even a greater exemption. So, so th- this would actually mean, consider this, this would actually mean that even in a war like today, which is Milchamas Mitzvah, because we have an enemy that's attacking us, a chassan in the first year of his marriage, because he's consummated today, we don't have the Arison Nesuin thing, is exempt from going to that war. So you see how important this is, you see how important Shona Rishona is, the relationship of a husband and a wife to build in that first year is so important that there's even an exemption for Milchames Mitzvah. Now, I don't know, I honestly don't know if that is the policy of, of the state of Israel. I'm not sure if they give a military exemption for people in the first year of marriage. Now, people volunteer, that I do know. Um, and with, your, with a wife's permission, you're allowed to volunteer. I'm sorry, I keep on saying you. I'm, I'm not talking to women, but I'm speaking it from my male chauvinist perspective. Uh, but, but, but generally speaking, it's very important that you understand that the exemption of Shana Rishona is not in Parsha Shoftim, it's in Parsha Kiseitse. And therefore, the limitations that the Mishnah puts on the exemptions in Parsha Shoftim do not apply to the Shana Rishona exemption of Kiseitse. Um, yeah. Um, oh. um, okay. Uh, yeah. Me? Yeah. Okay, so um, you did mention that if she gives permission, then you can go. So it's not prohibited, prohibited it's just exempt. Is that the same thing with the other ones from Artashoftim? Are they also not prohibited, just they're exempt? Yeah, except for the last one. I think the person that has this... Uh, debilitating fear, even if he wants to go, we wouldn't let him because he could hurt other people. So I, I would differentiate between the fourth exemption and the other three. The other three would be exemptions, but uh, I think the last one would be a prohibition, meaning if you can't get yourself together. In fact, I want to tell you, the Gemara says, and this is actually American law as well, and I think it's the law of most armies, that if a guy goes, I mean, I, mean, I don't want to demean it, but if a guy kind of goes crazy, out of fear in the middle of a battle, uh, he can be killed, he can be shot. His general can shoot him, order him to be shot because he is endangering everybody. Uh, In halacha, that is brought down and I believe it was the practice in the American army uh, that literally could uh, take him out of commission because the the person is falling apart. I mean, it's a tragedy. I mean, of course it's a tragedy that that would ever happen. I mean, you're killing your own person. And I assume if you could just take him out of the way, I mean, you, know, you don't have to kill him. There may be other ways of just taking him away. But if for whatever reason uh, you can't take him away and he's going to go on and on and on, you know, that's called treason. You know, to give you another example, this is not the same situation. There was, uh, in World War II, there were some uh, British people 
who went over to the enemy. Uh, there was Tokyo Rose and Lord Hee These are made up names. And these were like English people who would broadcast in English to soldiers telling them, you know, you're not going to win. Germany is so much more powerful than you. Japan is so much more powerful than you. And uh, this really undermines people's morale. They keep on hearing messages every day how the enemy is going to destroy you, etc. Uh, so in a way, that's kind of a rodef. A rodef is somebody who's endangering my life, right? So uh, a person who is hysterically afraid may not have bad intention, but he's endangering people, and therefore he'd be allowed to be killed. Yeah. Um, okay, two things. I'm curious what Israel nowadays does about Shana Shana because a lot of people just got married on bases. You know? <laughs> so I'm just curious. That's one. And the other thing is, I know that, I know that in the IDF now, um, when it comes to mental health, if a family member was murdered in the past from a terrorist attack, then they're not allowed to go into combat right now. Mm. Um, like Ellie Kay, his brother, is married to my friend. He's not allowed to go into combat. Uh, 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 um, but then, but if it's a fallen soldier family, they're allowed to go into combat. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. That is, that's an interesting distinction. Yeah. And again, um, you know, mental health assessments are, are actually very, very critical in military assignments, both in terms of compassion and in terms of the military effort itself, you know, uh, because if a person is either so consumed with rage or consumed with depression, uh, they're not going to make the right decisions. Right. So those are very important uh, decisions that the... Uh, I'm sure among yeah. those, they are also testing them other ways, but, like, I know that those are yeah. two of the... Yeah. Well, one thing about Israel, Israel is very good at, um, at psychological profiling. In fact, even in the airports, uh, do, you, do you ever go through this? You know, they have these, these casual banter with you, and they're finding everything, everything about your life, you know. Uh, like sometimes, what they, do, some, what they used to do is this. They used to, if they saw like a, a religious person, but they suspected maybe he's a terrorist, maybe he's an Arab, you know, disguising himself. So they would say, uh, you have a nice, I mean, this non-religious uh, woman that's curious. Do you have any thought on the Parsha of the week this week? You know, <laughs> you know, you know uh, what Parsha are we reading this Shabbat? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. So, so, yeah, they, they ask the question because they, 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 they have to know this stuff because this is how they test you. Are you authentic? You know, on my regular trips, they always say, why are they asking me my words for Parsha? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I said it in but, last year and there was always security to getting into the Maharal's show every Friday night because it's yeah. still like a functional... Yeah. Functioning show. Yeah. Um, but there's security outside, and they ask you questions every week, and like they knew. Oh, even they, even if they mean even if they know you. Yeah, they would still wow. ask us questions wow. every week. That's interesting. What's this week's parsha? Who's your rabbi? They asked us. Wow. And I said, we said like the rabbi of our school. He's like, no, he's your rabbi. Are these Israelis <laughs> or local security? When you go no, check. These are check security. Okay. They asked okay. me that at the airport when yeah. I was coming from New York. Here, that, yeah. that, that even the check-in attendants were asking me, yeah. "Who's your rabbi?" Who's your rabbi? Yeah, yeah, they know. So, so the thing is, I don't want to get digress too much. You know, in the United States, what's called profiling is like the biggest crime in the world. You can't profile, so that's why the eighty-five-year-old grandmother has to go through a full body search. You, you, you have to treat everybody, you know, equally suspicious and the like. Uh, 
Israel does profiling all the time. Israel knows like who's likely to be a terrorist, who's not likely, and you know they they target their inquiries where where there's you know where it makes a difference. They don't like waste time on uh, people who are not uh, not risks. But what's so psychological about it? It's not psychological profiling. It's just that you're like the person like they can they can learn this as well. No, but they also they, but, but they also gauge your nervousness. That's part of the question. Meaning yeah, it's, it's not it's not just the information. It's are you taken aback? Are you you know they they they, they very much pay attention to they're body very, yeah. body language and nervousness and they're how tense you are. Like, in like, yeah. If you move your eyebrow the slightest, like they're like very. There's one story with a certain rabbi or something, or chassid or something, where he was asked, like, oh, I don't want to mess up the story. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, so, I ask one question? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, what if uh, a man's been married for 11 months when the, year, when the war starts, so he's within a year? Yeah. And then he just passes the year mark. Does, so, and the so, war's still going on. So, so that's a good question. It seems it seems logical that once his year is up, he can then be reconscripted. Meaning, you, you know, it's not like oh, you're in the year, so go back, and that now you're safe forever. Yeah. Meaning, if the war is still going on, you're going to have to report after Shana Rishona. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, let me mention two other categories of exemption. That's very very relevant. Uh, women. Let's talk about women, and let's talk about what is a major, major controversy, and that is uh, students of Torah, uh, boys, either married or single, uh, but not in Shana Rishona, who are studying Torah. Now, let me point out that um, the issue of women is less controversial today. Uh, a religious woman today can, can be ex- is allowed to claim an exemption. I mean, some religious women don't, more modern. But in the 1950s, uh, women and the draft was a big, 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 big issue. Ben-Gurion took the position, you know, he was the first prime minister of Israel, that women absolutely uh, should be obligated to participate in the army, at least in non-combat roles, and maybe even in combat roles. Uh, the gedolim of the time, like the Chazunish, they actually said that this was potentially so immoral in terms of things that could happen that they said a woman would have to give up her life before she would submit to joining the army and the like. So since then, it was a big, it was a big in the 1950s, this was a big issue. It went on for a number of years. But Mamaisa, uh, the law in Eretz Israel today is that uh, women are totally exempt. Now, uh, there are different options. There are three options uh, for a woman uh, today. There is army. A woman could join the army if she wants. Uh, there is what is called Sheirut Lumi, which is national service outside of the army, such as hospital duty, but you're not in the army, but you know, you're under a government program. And then there is total exemption. So generally speaking, uh, most of the Haredi world, I'm, I'm not describing halacha yet, I'll get to the halacha. Most of the Haredi world, uh, not only do women not join the army in any role, they also do not participate in Shirut Lumi. Now, now the truth is, it's a little bit of a question. What is so bad about Shirut Lumi? I mean, many, many religious women visit hospitals anyway. 
So what's wrong if they do it in the framework of Shirut Lumi? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure I can totally explain it, but I can tell you that the feeling was that we don't want Benos Yisrael to be under government orders to do something, meaning even, even, if, even if you're visiting the hospital 10 hours a week anyway, but don't do it under a government program where the government has control over you and the government can tell you where to go because maybe they could switch you into the army. Okay. So I'm not defending it. I mean, you, you could argue with this. You can argue with this approach. But I, I just tell you, Lamaisa, a typical Haredi woman, will not only not be in the army, she will not be in Sheirut Lumi, but uh, she'll do whatever she does. Uh, you know, she, she may indeed volunteer and do all sorts of, of things. Uh, in the Dati Liumi world, which are religious Zionist girls, most of them do not go into the army, but those who don't go into the army will do Sheirut Lumi. They consider Sheirut Lumi to be very, very acceptable. And there is a minority, minority, a, small, a minority of, of Dati Lumi women who will actually join the regular army. There's even a tinier, tinier, a tinier minority of Haredi uh, women, but they're really not Haredi anymore, but uh, they're, they're moving in a, different, in a different direction. Okay, but what, what's the halacha, right? What is the halacha? Right? Put, put aside the politics, put aside the accommodations. Uh, so there actually is a statement in the Mishnah that says, for a milchemes mitzvah, mitzvah, you pull the kala from under the chuppah. You take it from under the chuppah. That's what it says. Uh, even the kala comes, is schlepped from under the chuppah. Whoa. So the chayra, if you just read the text very literally, this would indicate that if it's a milchemes mitzvah, women... Maybe they're exempt from combat. That might be so, but they do have to have some... In other words, to me, this is almost a definitive text for some type of Sheirut Lumi, some type of national service, because it does say in a mitzvah war, and as I say, the wars that we're fighting are mitzvah wars, women do have some obligation to participate. So a little bit of a question. All I can tell you is in practice, however... The Gedolim have not gone in that direction and the Gedolim have been very, very, very against, even within the Haredi world, Hasidic and Haredi world, I include Hasidim and Haredim, they've been against uh, any type of Sheirut Lumi, even for women. So again, I'm, I'm not here to poskin for you if any of you have to make these decisions. You know, you can either talk to me or talk to other uh, rabbis or teachers about it. Uh, it's something to, you know, something, you know, that if you're going to make Aliyah, uh, and you're, you know, you're not old, you're not so old to be beyond the service age, uh, you're going to have to consider uh, Shevet Lumi and the like. Again, my personal feeling is, <laughs> is to me, I don't see what is so bad about Shevet Lumi, but I, but I, but but I can tell you, many people do think it's an improper thing to do. Okay, now the second thing I want to talk about is the exemption for people who are learning Torah. And this makes a difference if they're married or single, if they're not in Shona Rishona. Now, here, let me give you a little history because it's, it's good to know the, the facts on the ground before we get to the halacha. When Ben-Gurion, Ben-Gurion is, a, you know, like him or hate him, Ben-Gurion is an extremely important person in the history of the state of Israel. 
uh, he was the Lahavdal, he was, well, maybe I shouldn't say Lahavdal, he was the George Washington of Israel, more, more, more or less. Uh, he was the first prime minister. He was the guy that read the Declaration of Independence in 1948, right? So he's the guy. Now, Ben-Gurion, although he was European, his real name was Green. His name was David Green, David Green. Ben-Gurion is son of a lion. He took on all these Hebrew names. Ben-Gurion uh, was very unreligious, <laughs> maybe anti-religious in some ways, but Ben-Gurion had to negotiate with religious parties in order to establish a government in 1948. And the religious parties were making certain demands that in order, we will only form a government if you agree to certain things. And Ben-Gurion agreed to certain things, among which he agreed that with respect to public transportation, he adopted what was called a status quo agreement. What does status quo mean? Meaning, any community in Israel that did not have bus service on Shabbos prior to 1948 would not be allowed to have bus service on Shabbos. That's called status quo. Any community that did have bus service prior to 1948 would be allowed to continue. Now this explains why Yerushalayim does not have buses on Shabbos. Even Tel Aviv did not, although things changed very recently, have buses on Shabbos. But Haifa, which is even a more secular city than Tel Aviv, does have buses on Shabbos because they had buses prior to 1948. This is the, called the famous status quo agreement. Now, I understand that just last year, Tel Aviv uh, authorized uh, public uh, transportation on Shabbos. So I th I'm not sure if it went through or not, but they, they were going to allow buses on Shabbos. Okay, so that's called the status quo agreement. The other thing Ben-Gurion agreed to was that anybody that was a full-time yeshiva student would be exempt from the uh, draft in the army. Now, why did Ben-Gurion agree that a full-time yeshiva student should be exempt from military service? Why would he agree to that? The answer is very simple. In 1948, there were only around 400 or less full-time yeshiva students in the land of Israel. Ben-Gurion believed that this was a vanishing grief. Remember, his whole hashkafa was that Torah Judaism was not going to survive the Holocaust. He said, hey, there's a, a small group of crazy fanatics here. All right, so now they're 400. It's going to go down to 300, to 200, to 100, to 50, to zero. Ben-Gurion thought he wasn't giving anything up because it's going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. This was the philosophy of many Zionists. They said, you know, Yiddishkeit belongs to the Gullus. It's not, it's not going to take root in this new land. Mm. Well, Baruch Hashem, <laughs> Ben-Gurion was proven wrong on this. And it grew thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. Now, had Ben-Gurion known that that would be the number of people not joining the army, he never would have agreed to it. But he agreed to it because, now, 
Because of this, in recent years, again, I'm not giving you halakhi, I'm just giving you a little political history. In recent years, the secular part of the society has been demanding more and more and more that uh, yeshiva boys be subject to the, to the draft. And the, the present law of Israel, which is very partially enforced, is that uh, there's no longer an exemption and uh, yeshiva boys are supposed to register. I, I don't mean, again, if you're an American, if you're not an Israeli citizen, you don't have a problem. I mean, all, all, the draft law only applies to an Israeli citizen, but so if you're American or British or whatever, there's no issue here. But if you are an Israeli citizen, uh, you are obligated to register and you can be called up for military service. But uh, the government changes all the time and whenever religious parties are in power, they try to repeal it. And when they're not in power, it gets reenacted. So this is a state of flux. In fact, if you remember last year, before this war, if you remember all of the demonstrations, so there were two types of demonstrations going on in Israel. One were demonstrations, no matter where you go, you get hit with demonstrations no matter where you go. Uh, sometimes you had demonstrations by religious Jews, and sometimes you had demonstrations by secular Jews, blocking traffic and the like. But they were demonstrating over two different things. When the religious Jews were demonstrating, they were demonstrating over drafting yeshiva boys to the army. That was their demonstration. When the secular uh, were demonstrating, they were demonstrating over Netanyahu's uh, attempt to reform the Israeli Supreme Court, which is a judicial reform issue. They had two different issues. But the common denominator is that, you know, your bus is always going to be blocked. You know, <laughs> you're taking a bus uh, and you're going to be blocked. Sometimes you're going to be blocked by religious people and sometimes you're going to be blocked by secular people. Um, I'm personally against blocking traffic for any reason, but okay. Uh, I mean, I missed uh, I, mean, I missed two weddings I had to go to, two chasnas, uh, because of this stuff. Okay, I mean, you know, that was a little hard, but, but, but I'll tell you the truth. I mean, uh, there were more serious issues. There were people who couldn't get to uh, hospitals, people who couldn't get to medical treatment uh, because of these uh, blocking of traffic and, and, and the like. Okay, but be it as it may, uh, the issue of the drafting of yeshiva boys is a major, major issue in Israeli society to this very day. Now, you may know that within the Dati Liumi world, there is a type of yeshiva that's called the Hester yeshiva. Now, the Hester yeshiva basically creates a program for, for boys, for men, not, not for women, for, for men, that combines Torah learning with military service. So they'll have a five-year program that says, you know, you study Torah for three years and you serve in the army for two years. And they believe that this is the best thing to do because they are both involved in the physical defense of the Jewish people and they're involved in the spiritual defense. And the truth is, the Hester students, are uh, they make a real Kiddush Hashem because uh, even when they're in the army, even when they're soldiers, you know, they learn, they daven, they continue to do mitzvahs. In most of the Haredi world, the basic idea is that people don't go to the army, but, but again, even with the Haredi world, there are exceptions. Uh, there are a number of Chabad, a number of Chabad people uh, who go to the army uh, and they volunteer. 
Uh, and uh, there are special units in the army that are set up for Haredim. Because remember, Haredim would have a different standard of kashras, meaning the army is kosher, right? But the, the army's standard of kashras may not be acceptable to people who are more ultra-Orthodox. So, so the army set up special units to accommodate Haredim, Nachal Haredi and the like. Uh, and, you know, still, uh, things are difficult because one of the things the army likes to do is the army likes to have for morale, they like to have a lot of concerts where people sing. And often uh, they get female singers. So you, you have religious people in the army who are good soldiers. They're very good soldiers. They're not, they're not going to listen to a woman sing. So when the woman sings, they leave. They get in tremendous trouble. I mean, it's almost like they're criminals. Uh, they, they're threatened with jail. They're threatened with court-martial. Right? So the truth is, the question of whether the army accommodates uh, all religious needs is not, is, not, is not so clear. Okay, so again, uh, in terms of... Um, What's going on? Historically, full-time Torah students have been exempt from military service, but the Dati Liumi world created the Hester program. In recent years, the government has tried to repeal the exemption, and this is product of demonstrations, and it goes back and forth, and, uh, and, and the like. Uh, okay, uh, however, even with this exemption, there are a number of both uh, Hasidic and non-Hasidic men who do volunteer for military uh, service, and uh, the army has created special units for Haredim. When I say Haredim, I include Hasidim as well uh, to participate. Okay, so that's kind of the history of what's going on, and this is a very, very live controversy. But again, let me talk about this from the standpoint of Halacha. First of all, is there an exemption for a student of Torah at all? I mean, if we say for a Milchemes Mitzvah, everybody has to go, except the Chassan Shana Rishona, who says, just because I'm learning Torah full-time, I don't have to fight in the Milchemes Mitzvah, especially a defensive war? Meaning, is there such a thing as an exemption for a Torah student? Like, what, what, what basis would there be for such an exemption? So the truth is, it's very far from clear, uh, but some want to base it on a passage in the Rambam. The Rambam writes, at the end of the laws of Shemitah and Yovel, the Rambam describes the unique role of Shevet Levi, the whole tribe of Levi, Kohanim Levian. And he points out that Shevet Levi was not given a portion in the land of Israel. They were supported by people giving them truma and maser tithes. And why were they not given a regular portion of land? Because God wanted them to be totally devoted to teaching Torah, to learning Torah, to serving Hashem, and they wouldn't have the distractions of ordinary life. And then the Rambam adds something. And therefore, Shevet Levi 
is exempt. Shevet Levi is exempt from all wars. Now underline that one because that's the Rambam's additional note. Yeah, we know from the Torah Shevet Levi doesn't have land. That we know. But the Rambam adds they were exempt from war because their contribution to the war is their spiritual teaching. So, the Rambam then goes on and says that Shevet Levi is Lavdafka. It's not only the tribe of Levi, but anyone who dedicates himself to serve Hashem, to learn Torah and teach Torah, is given the status of Shevet Levi. That's a sec. So, do you understand that there are two innovative thoughts in this Rambam? The first innovative thought is that Shevet Levi is exempt from war. That itself is a Chiddush. Then there's a second Chiddush that the category called Levi can be expanded. See, two, two separate steps here. Based on that Rambam, some have tried to construct the idea that a full-time student of Torah could qualify as a Shevet Levi person and would therefore be exempt. The question you have to ask yourself honestly is, is every person in a yeshiva meet the definition. I mean, the Rambam is talking about a Shevet Levi, a person who's totally devoted to the service of God, who doesn't think about anything else, who is devoted only to Torah. You see, not every student in yeshiva is, is that. Meaning, are we, are we taking a category that was meant to apply to some great tzaddikim in Kal Yisrael? And are we overgeneralizing it? That's the question. But be it as it may, the alleged exemption of yeshiva students is based on this Rambam. Now, I'm going to ask you another question. And again, I, I, I don't mean to be anti-Haredi because I, I'll try to, we're running out of time, so I'll have to continue this. And that is, the Haredi world takes the position that it's not only yeshiva students that are exempt from the army, but anybody that's Haredi should be exempt from the army. Meaning, even if you're a regular working person, uh, you're an accountant, but you're Haredi. Now, where do you get that from? Me meaning, the guy that's spending his whole time learning Torah, at least you can extrapolate that in the Rambam's category of Levi. But that certainly doesn't apply to everybody who's Haredi or Hasidic. So, again, I, I hate to leave you on a negative note. Uh, we, we'll talk about this, because I'm, I'm bringing this up as questions. I'm not, I am not, please understand, I am not bringing this up as attack. How can I attack? I mean, I'm Haredi myself. Uh, but I bring it up as questions to think about, because, I, because so many things are politicized and no one ever discusses the actual sources for things. So I want you to be at least educated in terms of sources. And that is, the exemption of yeshiva students is based on the Rambam's equation 
to Shevet Levi. My two questions are, is every yeshiva student a righteous person of the level of Shevet Levi? And number two, how do you explain the exemption for religious people who are not full-time students of Torah? Right, those are two separate, two separate questions. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll continue to discuss this again. I mean, uh, I hope by next week there'll be no war, but, uh, but if God forbid we still have Muhammad, so this is still no gale of Misa, and we will uh, we'll continue to talk about it. So again, you have a good week, a safe week, and may Hashem have Rachamim on Am Yisrael. Amen.